You guys have a seat where you are. Welcome. My name is Mark, if I hadn't had a chance to meet you. And we're going to continue this morning on our series called Great Expectations, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, before we get into the text for today, I kind of want to just kind of bring us up to speed because some of you might not have been here for all the three weeks prior, and, and all these things are kind of building blocks, okay? And so, so we started this, this journey four weeks ago when Brock just stood up and basically read the text over us from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to, to chapter 7, verse 29, and it was powerful. Um, for many of us, it was the first time that we maybe have heard the entire Sermon on the Mount in its, its original form. It was inspiring. It was condemning. Uh, Jesus just dropping one seemingly impossible standard after another, one gut punch after another, one just, uh, wow, so that's what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. And some of us probably walked away thinking, I'm not sure about this. Um, two weeks ago, um, we started actually digging into the, to the specific pieces of the sermon, and we looked at the Beatitudes, which is how Jesus starts the sermon. And we talked about what the word blessed actually means. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What, what does that word actually mean? And we, we found out that it was from the Greek word makarios, which means more than happy. It means favored by God and being happy because of that knowledge. Being makarios is, is not just being happy because Phil Mickelson has a chance to win again and give hope to all the old people in the room. Because it, that's going to fade probably this afternoon. No, it's, it's eternal. It's unshakable. It's not just happy because of a circumstance. It's favored in position with holy God. And Jesus painted this picture of what it looked like, what it was going to look like in the kingdom for those who are favored, who are blessed. And we dug into each of those statements and we found out that, that they're not a series of disconnected, in, independent statements. They're, they're connected and they, they lead us on a path towards the kingdom. Talked about the fact that Jesus was, was kind of dropping breadcrumbs for his followers to say, you don't understand this right now because you're living under the law. And so I'm about to, I'm about to wreck your train in a lot of ways because I'm going to say the law says this and you're not very good at that, but I'm going to raise the bar. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but one day it's going to make sense because I'm going to show you the way into the kingdom. And Jesus told him basically, yeah, it sounds like a riddle, but here's, here's the deal. I'm the answer to that riddle. And the cross will explain it all. Because once Jesus went to the cross and he lived a perfect life, we can look back on the Beatitudes and we can say, that's a picture of Jesus. He was low in spirit. He made himself low. He mourned over it. He did all those things. He was the answer. And he wanted us to know that before he started all this individual teaching about these particular sins and struggles that we all face. Last week, Brock got us into it by starting to dig into those first two points. And they were a couple of doozies, right? About, he, he talked to us about, about murder Anger, lust, and adultery. It's like reality TV. Like, it's like, turn on your... That's, that's all we see. That's, it's called entertainment in our culture, in case you don't know that. 
But it wasn't so entertaining when we look at the depravity of our own hearts. He, he, he pointed us towards a writing by Glenn Stassen who, who broke the Sermon on the Mount into 14 different teaching points. And he called them triads because there were three, three points of teaching in each one. And it was a way to break it down. And, and uh, he went through those first two with us. And, and the three steps that he told us are in each of these teaching points are, number one, just a statement of some kind of traditional, traditional righteousness or piety. It's like in that, that first one, you've heard it said of old, do not murder. But then the second thing is when Jesus says, but I say to you, don't be angry in your heart. Remember, he talked about the volcano and that picture of the eruption. And we're concerned about the eruption, but God's concerned with the pressure that's building in our core. So the first thing is that traditional statement of religion and then the core, the root cause of that. And then the third thing, which I think was the hopeful thing for us, is that Jesus gives us some kind of transforming initiative, something that we can do to proactively break the cycle, right? We don't have to just, just be swept away in this current of sin forever, but there's something we can do about it, but it's not always going to be easy, right? And so last week we, we talked about those two things and again it was both indicting and liberating but it reminded us that there's hope in the kingdom it is possible to live in this world and disagree with people and be reconciled to those people and it not end in bitter conflict we we were reminded that it is possible to look at each other the way that God sees, each, sees us as brothers and sisters, and we don't have to objectify one another to place people in categories for our own pleasure. Those things came out of those first two passages in Matthew chapter 5, and so it got us up to Matthew 5, 31, which brings us to today. Are you ready? If you know me at all, you know that... Um, I might not know the answer, but I'm, hopefully you're never going to see Brock or I duck a difficult passage of Scripture. This is one I don't want to talk about. Um, it's just not. But it's right there, and they're the words of Jesus. And so let's see what he says in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And this is what the Word says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Woo! This is, this is going to be fun. So that's where we are today. And so I want us to tackle this because this is, a, this is an issue that, that touches all of our lives in some way. And Jesus has some things to say about it. The Bible has a lot to say about it, but I want us to get the right picture of it because the church has misused this passage of Scripture through the years to wound a lot of people. And I'm not trying to change Jesus' words, but I want us to look at what he was actually talking about, okay? And then you draw your own conclusions, okay? But in the context of divorce, we need to look at what he was talking about back in Jewish culture. Okay, let's, let's start there. According to William Barclay, in his commentary on Matthew, he said this, There is no time in history 
when the institution of marriage stood in greater peril of destruction than in the days when Christianity first came into the world. So when Jesus is standing in front of these people and he's talking to the Jews and his gospel of the kingdom is about to go past the Jews out to the Gentiles, to the Greeks and the Romans and the ends of the earth, and he knew these words would be recorded and they would be applicable today in American culture in 2020, we have to realize who he was talking to and why he was talking to them. Let's, let's start with the Jews. If you were a woman in Jewish culture back in the day, you had no rights. You were property. You were, a, you were a thing. You were a possession. You could be traded. You could actually probably bought and sold, bartered. That, that was the world in which Jesus was speaking into when he's saying, oh, by the way, women, if you didn't like your husband, you couldn't divorce. You're stuck. Um, but he could divorce anytime he wanted, according to their interpretation of the law. There were, um, there were two different ways of teaching Two different groups of Pharisees. Byron, maybe you can help me with this because I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's the, the Shema, or is it Shema-I, and the Hillel. Two, there were the conservatives and the, and the liberals. And the conservatives said, the only way you can divorce, and it's only the man, is if your wife's unfaithful. If, if, the, if the man's unfaithful, wife has no, you can't do anything about it. This is a man's law, okay? It's a man's world. It's like, is that James Brown? Who is that? Yeah. Okay, But the Hillels, they're liberals, and they would basically say, no, you can divorce anytime you want as long as you say it three times in the presence of witnesses. And that's the, the two extremes. It's like you know, unclean means you put too much salt on my eggs. Um, I don't like the way you're wearing your hair. And religious men were doing this. He's speaking into this culture of Females having no value and men taking advantage, okay? It was different in the Greek and the Roman culture because sexual immorality was rampant in the Greek culture. We read in the, if you look, read in the book of 1 Corinthians in the temple of Aphrodite, there were temple prostitutes. Like they religiousized prostitution. And all of their fulfilling relationships in the Greek culture happened outside the marriage. They got married... You had to have a respectable woman to continue your bloodline. Okay, so you kept her locked away, and then you went out and you did everything you wanted to do. That was, that was the Greek and Roman culture. What about our culture today, though? Because we don't live back then. We live now, and some of you, this touches you deeply, and you're, you're hating the fact we're even talking about it today. I'm hoping that you find some hope in my words today. See, divorce is an issue that's impacted everyone in this room in some way, some more than others. Um, at, at its very best, it's painful, heart-wrenching. At its worst, it destroys families and individuals for generations and generations, and it redefines legacy, and it taints our image of, of a holy father. It makes us cynical it, because it, it shakes our confidence in the human condition. All that to say about this topic, and Jesus gives it two sentences in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll read them again just in case you missed them. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say, 
to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Interesting point as we look at this. There is no transforming initiative in this piece of it. There's just the first two steps. The problem, the root cause, but no way out. Divorce leads to a vicious cycle of adultery, but if you just read this, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no way out. There's no escape or redemption mentioned once the divorce has already happened. Sasson, the guy that wrote the, the 14 triads paper, himself said it this way, Surprisingly, there is no transforming initiative. We are left in this vicious cycle. Jesus suggests no way of deliverance or grace. What could be the reason for this glaring omission in an otherwise consistent pattern? He goes on to explain it this way. And he said three years later, after he, he had come up and written this paper, he was studying the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, and Paul's talking about marriage, and Paul says this, to the married I give this charge, parentheses, not I, but the Lord, close parentheses, and then he goes on to tell them to be reconciled with one another. Okay? We don't know when Paul heard Jesus say that. Stassen assumes that Paul got that teaching handed down from Jesus and that maybe Jesus said it that day on the Sermon on the Mount, but for some reason Matthew didn't write it down. Maybe. I mean, I, th I think it's a, it's a pretty, big, pretty big leap. I would like to offer maybe a different picture of this today. Because I, I'm just thinking about what I know of the heart of God. And here's the question, what about, if, if this is all Jesus, this is all the Bible says about divorce, and Jesus talks about it again in Matthew chapter 19, and it's kind of the same stuff. But if that's the most accurate picture of the heart of God, then what about those of you who've already been through a divorce? I mean, let's just say it out loud. There are a lot of you in here, right? How does God view you? How does God view your marriage? Are you just labeled an adulteress or an adulterer for the rest of your life? Is that the heart of God? See, because I think the gospel is good news, right? Hope is alive because he's alive, right? And if this is where we choose to say, oh, I'm just going to take these verses, and that's, that's how God feels about people who have gone through divorce or are in the process of, of divorcing, then how is the gospel good news for them? Because I don't think Jesus is about labels. Let me ask you a question. Does this sound consistent with how, how Jesus treated the woman caught in adultery in, in John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11? You know the story. The Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. They go find this uh, woman, caught her in the act of adultery. You don't commit adultery by yourself, by the way. So there was someone else involved, but only the woman got drugged in front of Jesus, right? And they bring this woman, they throw her at Jesus' feet and says, the law says we're supposed to stone her, what do you say? And Jesus doesn't even look them in the eye. He's just, he's just drawn in the dirt. He stands up, he says, hey, if any of you don't have sin, you... You be the first one to throw the stone. 
And one by one, starting from the oldest to the youngest, they all dropped their stones and they walked away. And Jesus said in John 8, chapter 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Was she an adulteress? Yes, without a doubt. But she was a forgiven adulteress. And forgiven is a much bigger word. Does Jesus clearly say in Matthew chapter 5, the act of divorce can make all parties involved adulterers? Yes, he said that. But he also said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're already adulterers. If you look at someone with hate in your heart, you're already a murderer. Guys, look around the room. A bunch of adulterers and murderers on our best day. Because that stuff is already in there. We can't go in and unthink anything we've thought before, right? But that's not a label we wear around for the rest of our lives. Jesus has much more powerful things to say about her. Divorce and adultery are not the unforgivable sin, people. There is one. It's in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, and it's, it's blaspheming the Holy Spirit by rejecting Jesus Christ. That is the unforgivable sin. How about we focus there, okay? Let me tell you what I think. As I read this, this was the aha I had this week. See, the words of Jesus are so rich on so many levels. What I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to, the picture I'm about to paint in no way changes the fact that each of these individual teachings are valuable and valid on their own. And they can speak to specific situations in your life where you're struggling with anger or unforgiveness or lust or sexual impurity or loving your enemies or, or, or an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, retaliation. All those things are true. There's pearls of wisdom for your life in this, but I think if we take a step back and we look at a bigger piece of this passage, it paints a different picture. And maybe there's a transforming initiative in that. Maybe there's something that Jesus is saying, no, you're not stuck in that. Here's what I want you to do to break this cycle. And here's, here's my take, okay? Matthew 5, starting in verse 21, which is what Brock preached last week. It's the passage about anger, right? About murder. If your Bible, just look at your Bible. Look in the actual paper book. If you've got a paper Bible in your hand, it might not show up like this on your phone. I don't know. But in my Bible, Matthew 5, 21 through 48, is broken into six little sections. Six. The first one, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, talks about murder slash anger. And then there's another heading that says lust in my Bible. And so verses 27 through 30 talk about lust, adultery. And then there's another little section, verses 31 and 32, that says divorce. And then there's another little section that says oaths. That's verses 33 through 37. And then there's another section that says retaliation, which is verses 38 through 42. And then it ends with loving your enemies. You know what I think that those things look like to me? They look like the life cycle of a broken covenant. These sections, if you look at the big picture, what Jesus is saying, he starts to say, you've heard it said before, 
don't commit murder, and he goes all the way to loving your enemies. It sounds like the life cycle of a broken covenant. It sounds like stories that I hear from some of you when we have lunch, and you're walking through a painful divorce, and I hear things like this. Somebody gets mad. Somebody, somebody does something that the other person just can't get over, and they refuse to reconcile. This leads people to start looking for satisfaction outside the marriage relationship, which leads to a nasty divorce battle. Confidence are shattered because people have not kept their promises. They made oaths, they made vows, but they, they, they broke them. And then after that, a bitter battle over stuff ensues. Uh, just fighting over everybody trying to get what's, what's theirs. And we have people that get paid a lot of money to counsel us to demand to get every penny we can get, right? And to counter every ugly thing that's said with something uglier. And then it ends up with the person that we loved more than anything in the world becoming our most bitter enemy. Does it sound familiar to anybody? Am I just, am I making this stuff up? I mean, it's anger, refusing to, to reconcile, leads us down this path. It's the life cycle of a broken covenant. Am I making this up? Consider the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. When he said this in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. And he goes on in verse 32 to say, The mystery is profound and it refers to Christ and the church. What did Christ do for the church? Let's go back to the Old Testament, okay? The Old Testament, God had a chosen people. Who were they? Israel. They were the first picture of the church. They were God's chosen people. He set them apart. He treated them different than He treated everyone. He was faithful to them. He made a covenant commitment to them, and they didn't keep their part of the covenant, right? Even though they were faithless, God was always faithful and Jesus even described himself in Matthew 15 as the one that was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The reason he came was to redeem his chosen people. See, I was talking to Brock about this when I had this, this kind of popped into my head. Me and Brock start this texting barrage. And, and this is a quote from him. I said, is it possible that all this stuff is connected? That the reason that he doesn't say anything about how to... How to What's the light at the end of the tunnel for divorce? Is because that's just a blip on the radar screen. There's a process of living in a broken covenant and restoring covenants. Jesus, Brock said this. He said, Jesus enters the story both to seal the covenant and to show us how to keep it. See, you can't do anything about yesterday, people. You can't, you can't change any pain of your past, but you can People live with an accurate picture of what it looks like to be restored in the kingdom. See, as citizens of this new kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, we need to learn from the mistakes of the past. Both the mistakes of, of the children of Israel, but the mistakes of our past. Guys, some of the most painful things in my life, most of the most painful things in my life are relational-centered. They're about friendships or family relationships. 
that at one time I had and now I don't. It's bigger than divorce. It's remembering that Jesus didn't give up on us even when we were unfaithful to him. And he's showing us, just like those breadcrumbs that lead into the kingdom, he's saying, hey, this is a picture of what real life is like. And it's not always going to be pretty, and you can't stop in the middle. What if the transforming initiative for this teaching on divorce is that Jesus really wants to teach us about living in real covenant relationships. Regardless of what yesterday looked like. Regardless of the pain that maybe your parents passed down to you. Maybe he's saying, this is what it looks like to love someone who lets you down. And to love them well. You you don't have to retaliate. If they ask you to, 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 to go one mile, go two. You don't have to fight this battle because I'll fight it for you. I don't care what they say about you, how, how much they vilify you. You don't have to return in kind. You, I'm going to tell you to love your enemies. See, these sections of Scripture, I think, paint a picture of restoration for a people who never deserved it. They paint a picture of how Jesus loves and redeems us. They show us how to live with one another in the context of the covenant of the kingdom, this better covenant that Jesus came to give us when he fulfilled all of the law. He said, you don't have to be bound by that stuff anymore. I'm not holding you to that standard. Why would you hold someone else to it? He's going to talk a little bit later about judging, right? It's all connected. Let me just ask you some questions for for contemplation, and then I'm done. Um, For those of you in the room that have gone through the process of divorce, I'm so sorry. Um, Asking you to relive that pain is probably the hardest part about talking about a passage like this. But just ask yourself this question. For those of you who've gone through it, how differently might it have turned out if these words of Jesus had been your roadmap? I'm not saying it wouldn't have ended in much the same way, but would you be different because of it? For those of of you in marriages that might be teetering on the edge right now, wake up. There's still hope. This is a roadmap for living in covenant. It's not too late. And for those of you in this place, and I have many friends that this applies to who've already divorced and remarried, do not let me or any preacher pick up one passage of Scripture and cherry pick it and paint the wrong picture of how God feels about you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed, and the new has come. See, the enemy wants you to live under the label attached to your, to your worst characteristics. He wants you to, to define yourself by your sin. 
Jesus says, no, I have a name for you. Beloved. That's who you are. That's who you are. None of these other things, although they could all be true about us, they don't define us in Christ. Do you hear me, church? The next chapter can honor God a whole lot more than the previous one. My encouragement to you is to hold on to that hope. Build your house on the things that Jesus tells us to build our house on right here. Don't stop reading when it gets offensive. Hang in there. Keep digging and, and wait for God to show you the light of the bigger picture of the gospel. Pray with me. Father, um, my prayer over these people today is that uh, you might heal some, some deep hurts that, that the enemy uh, just kind of keeps picking at. And you would let some people move past maybe some stigmas or some, some just pain that maybe has been inflicted by the church. And let us do what you told us to do and simply love people the way you loved us. Realizing that if we are standing around Jesus in front of him and that adulterous woman and we've got that rock in our hand, we have no right to throw it. No right at all. And so may we drop our rocks. And may we hit our knees and thank holy God that he has not given up on us. Your mercies are new every morning and I pray that today would be no different. I pray for some freedom in this place. I pray for a clearer picture of the character of, of Jesus. You're not about labeling people. You're about redeeming people. All of us were enemies of, of the cross at one time. And it's only by your grace that we were saved. I pray that that grace would flow freely in this place today as we worship in response. Join me in standing.